Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, heritage and people of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today in Seatoller at the Glaramara Centre with author, illustrator and walker Mark Richards. Good morning, Mark. Hello, David. Lovely to be with you again. Yes, we're back again. This is the podcast that didn't happen on times previous because of the weather, but we're here today and it's rather nice out. It's a calm, gentle Lakeland day, probably the last of its kind. We are talking today, Mark, about trees. Yeah, trees are very much what Borrowdale's all about. Many people see this as a great craggy valley, and that is true. Uh, In times past, it was seen as a romantic, dramatic alpine valley. And there are one or two trees that have been planted that sort of emphasise that alpine look. But fundamentally and historically, the native tree cover is here. So you have that genuine continuity here that is unique. This is a rare microcosm of what the Lake District was all about a thousand, two thousand, you name it, years ago. Now, normally, Mark, you create a wonderful walk for us on Country Stride. Today, it's a little bit different. You've handed the reins over to our two guests. Rob and Harriet Fraser are members of the Royal Geographical Society and Fellows and have specialised in creating photographs and lecturing on the nature of landscapes. We're meeting people who have got a, a very specialist and artistic perspective. I have a very quick quiz for you, Mark. You know, country stride first. What do you think the most populous species of uh, tree in Cumbria is? Now, sycamore. No. That's not in the top three. The answer is, it's the Sitka spruce. Oh, of course. (laughs) Which may be a trick question, but... Uh, in terms of native trees, it's, uh, it's the oak is, is the most populous, uh, followed by the birch. Fabulous. Uh, why didn't I think of that? And sycamore, of course, there's a lovely one on the village green in Elterwater, isn't there, which mm. is just a gorgeous feature of that village. Uh, that's a non-native species. Yep. There's uh, another interesting couple of facts, which is that forestry cover in Cumbria, 9.9% of the land. Now, that compares to 12.9% in England as a whole and 35% in Europe. So England and the UK, we're pretty poor at at forest cover. It's recovering to some extent. Cumbria has an even smaller population of trees than elsewhere in the UK, but we are lamentable compared to other European countries, some of which have a huge amount of forest cover. Clearly, this is an area that can recover and needs to recover. A couple of little final things before we set off to meet Robin Harriet. First thing is to say www.countrystride.co.uk. You can download all of our podcasts there. You can also search iTunes for Country Stride. And we are now on Twitter, Mark. Absolutely. Uh, at Country Stride 1. And a nice picture of you and me on there, Dave. <laughs> and a, it's a lovely picture. <laughs> is it? You can join our huge uh, army of. Twitter followers, I think at last count there were four. <laughs> so <laughs> you'll be you'll be one of the uh, one of the shows in a few. The elite, the, the yes. elite. Yes, uh, Mark. Where are we going to be meeting the Frasers? Close to uh, the Borrowdale School, uh, uh, approaching Stonethwaite. Let's go and meet them.
hello, it's Harriet and Rob. Great to see you. Hello. Morning, morning, Mark. Now, you're great Lakeland explorers, I know, but uh, what's your background, Rob? Um, I've been a photographer, I suppose, 35 years now, and I moved to the Lake District back in 2003, mm-hmm. primarily to be near to this landscape that I love. You know, oh. I just love the mountain landscape. So I moved here with a specific intention of making a life here. So I didn't have anything set up mm-hmm. uh, and then I've somehow managed to cobble together a career and a life in the last sort of 15, 16 years of being based here in this kind of place that I call home now. It's fantastic. Fabulous. It's the same for you, Harriet. What drew you to this magical place? Um, it was the hills. And actually, you know, it was just here that I fell in love with the Lake District in Seattle, just round the corner where I mm-hmm. came camping as a teenager. Um, and when I left university, I used to work for the Rough Guides and I wrote the Rough Guide to India. And then I got on the team to up, update the Rough Guide to the Lake District. Wow. So it's like, well, that's, that's quite a good job. Yes. Um, and I ended up moving here just to see how I'd get on for a couple of years. And that was nearly 30 years ago. Fabulous. Uh, you've got your dog with you, Harriet. What's this the is, name? This is Guillemot. Guillemot? <laughs> Guillemot came into our lives just after we'd been to Northumberland where there are a lot of coastal birds. and yeah. Well, he's black and white. Yeah, well, I, I, I grew up in the coast of Pembrokeshire. Uh, yes. That's where I had my formative years. I went to school in Tenby. And one of my big joys, passions at that time, was watching the seabirds along the cliffs there at Stackpole and all there. And Guillemot's always stood out in my mind. And it's a nice word. It is, isn't The it? Welsh for Guillemot, by the way, is elegug. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's a fantastic word, elegug. It's the sound they make. Yeah. Elegug, elegug. Yeah. Well, that's fabulous. Gilly, as I might call it. You call him Gilly. Yes. Uh, we've got a car come behind us now, but that's stopped. Gilly, uh, it's very quiet. Yes. Yes. He's a springer. He's a mute. Uh, he doesn't ah. say a lot. Uh, he thinks a fair bit, but he doesn't oh, say we much. Think think. We think you he think thinks. You think he thinks. Well, <laughs> if I can judge by his tail, it's permanently wagging. He's ready to go. He's ready to go. He's ready yeah. to go. Well, let's keep Gilly going. We'll set off towards Stonethwaite now. Rob, Harriet, we've entered the little hamlet of Stonethwaite. Charming little place, a meeting of tracks and the road, the barn, a leath over to our right. Uh, and uh, just pass under a larch tree and... And we got, we got a phone box after I left here, an old-fashioned red phone box, which has got email, text and phone. <laughs> Fabulous. Um, I suspect it doesn't do any of those things. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. We're very much aware, looking beyond the village, of trees. Yeah, yes. I mean, this is really, it's one of the most densely treed valleys in the Lake District. Um, and, and we're just looking now to that hillside there, covered with oaks, which are all very specific. That's on the north side of the valley from Stonethwaite. Yeah, they've developed specific characteristics. Uh, You've got a lot of um, ash, and we've got the the purply-branched birch, which is poking out through as well, and a few yew trees and hollies over there in the background. Yeah, as Harriet said, it's a very wooded area. It's quite a wooded Mm. landscape. Borrowdale itself, I would instinctively think of the name Borrowdale as being not just burrow, but it's the craggy defended valley but it's always had trees in it that we can appreciate what would be the first colonizing trees Uh, probably birch birch a very hardy pioneer species that can come into rough rough ground Um, they don't live very long but they manage to set seed and bring a lot of their own along and then create better conditions in the soil for other trees to root 
There's a lot of juniper as well. Juniper. Um, Order would have been a, one of the first sort of um, spaces that would probably colonise the area. They're one of the those... Um, where it's wet. Where it's wet especially, yeah. And so they set nitrogen in the soil, so they're very good for other plants to come on board. They'll, oh. they'll set a lot of nitrogen and allow for, for plants to sort of develop beyond that. We're drawing through the village now, but there's a, a flock of herdwick ewes just coming tightly through these narrow passage. We're going this side. And uh, we're having to move across to allow the sheep through. The dogs are pushing them from behind. And there's uh, a good 60 or 70 ewes, blue colours on their backs. They're through, going through, they're coming to topping in the valley. happening today in Stonefade. Just coming up by the Langstrath Country Inn. I love the sign next to it, in memory of a sunny day in Borrowdale. Now, can you give me a bit of a clue as to what fascinates you about trees and this particular setting? I think we both love trees for many, many years now. I've been growing bonsais in particular since, since I was a kid. So oh, I've got right. these small trees which I've had for well over 30 years. But I've always been drawn to them for some reason or another, and I don't know I can't really put my finger on it exactly. It may be that their, their agedness as they sort of um, put on years or the fact that they're, they're sat in one spot for a period of time and look over the landscape. It's, there's, there's something I've been drawn to, I suppose, personally. Yeah, I think like a lot of people, um, I used to climb trees as a kid. Actually, I still climb trees. That thing about being in a tree and having a different perspective on life and, and feeling the solidity of a tree and like Rob says, how old they are. I don't know, we both just love yeah. them. And then we realised when we met that we had both known and loved a, a particular sycamore on Whitbarrow Scar and we'd both climbed it as well. Yeah. Um, so we got talking about that and said, oh, how about doing a project on trees? Yeah, yeah. so we, we got a notebook which dates back, this sounds like an old kind of manuscript now, but it dates back to 2010, September, Ancient. when we started drawing out the, the ideas of a of a project that focused on trees and we wanted to do seven trees and the original project type was seeing seven trees and it's all fleshed out with what we we're going to do the elements and then we got involved in other projects um, so that kind of fell by the wayside slightly um, while we sort of spent three years with farmers hill farmers across Cumbria and, and other environmentalists and conservationists with the landkeepers project and then we thought oh that project that's a really good project let's go back to that mm. uh, and, we and we started we kept looking for trees yeah. it took us five years to find seven trees of different species yeah. spread out like a constellation across cumbria yeah. and what a lovely turn of today is is to the langstrath birch yeah fabulous which, which is one of the seven in some senses the trees themselves they were an excuse for us to just get out into the landscape we set this project up the long view with a view to um visiting as harriet said these trees repeatedly through all seasons all weathers night and day uh, and I think over the course of the two years, we probably did about 150, 160 visits to the trees spread across the landscape, just to get a sense of how they are, but also how they fit within the wider landscape and tell yes. the stories of the wider landscape. Quite. We'll be coming underneath a holly tree, Rob Harriet. It's uh, Hollins, I remember, is the local dialect word for holly tree. 
We passed by a, a great ash tree here. There are a lot of ash around us at the minute, and this one just here you would call a maiden ash, which mm -hmm. means it's never been cut. Ah. Whereas down in the valley there, along the path, are the pollarded ash. So they've got really thick trunks yep. and then thinner branches shooting off them. And they've been pollarded, which means they've had the top cut off them. That one's got, the nearest one I can see, has got a great burr on Yes. It. Now, yeah. isn't that fabulous? And it's hollow. And it's hollow. And it's probably very, very old. Yeah, I think um, yes. ash trees, when they're pollarded, tend to last a lot longer than the maidens. And it's to do with the, the structure of the tree itself. So it's, it's a kind of a symbiotic relationship in some respects. The farmer will lop off the branches every uh, couple of decades or so, so and that feeds uh, the sheep because there's a lot of uh, rich minerals in the... Um, oh, I think it's yes. potash or something like that that's in the branches, and they love the leaves. They can't get enough of it. Mm -hmm. So, that, of course, that takes the, the tree back to a, a, a tall stump Yep. and then it starts growing out these shoots again and it can put on an, a real great age through uh, constantly being pollarded. Yeah, so time. we were talking to some of the National Trust people who work here and some of these trees might be at least 700 years old and you don't really think about an ash tree being that old but it's like a coppiced or ancient woodland where trees have been cut down, but the roots are still there and they've been living for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. But the trouble is they can't age them because they're hollow. There's no method of actually sort of getting uh, anything into them. And then, then you think, does that really matter? No. You know, is the age of a tree, as some people have said to us, is not really the most important aspect. Although as humans, we like to sort of say that's a thousand years old yes. or that's 500 years old. You know, it's a natural human thing, whereas the trees, of course, just get on with it and um, yes. do and they, their own thing. They cope with the hostilities of the weather Yep. And that's why it's split and so forth. But it's got a sort of built-in resilience yes. and, uh, and doesn't have to keep rejuvenating or planting other versions of itself. It just keeps fighting back. It would plant other versions of itself because ash sprouts very easily, but it's also very appealing to deer and sheep. So. Oh, right. And is it the bark particularly? Well, the leaves. They'll take the, the seedlings, take uh, young wow. seedlings. They'll be stripped back. Um, right. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, at the minute, what ash trees are battling is ash dieback that's right. spreading around the country. And uh, some people have chosen not to pollard because it might make the tree more vulnerable. And some people have pollarded anyway. So it remains to be seen Which what way happen. works. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's early doors yet in terms of ash dieback about how destructive it's going to be for the tree species. But uh, some of the scientists we've spoken to said it could as much as 90% of the trees are just going to disappear in the next 15%. It's akin to Dutch elm disease. I remember that so yes, I do, vaguely. Yeah, yeah, I remember it sort of, they used to be there in my childhood memory, right. but now uh, they, they're yeah, out. Yeah, I remember them well. I was on a farm in West Oxfordshire, and predominant tree was elm. And suddenly they all started keeling over. Inside sort of 10 years, they're all gone. Yeah. Now this uh, holly, very prickly leaves to it. Yeah, it's got obviously the, the red berries now, uh, which coming on to Christmas time. It's, it's a very hard wood, a very dense wood. It's very heavy. Yep. Uh, it's quite hard to cut with a chainsaw, I know that, because I've tried it in the past. So it, it makes for good firewood as well, by it's all accounts. It's a slow burner then. Very slow burner. Uh, but, but one of the interesting things about holly is the, the low down leaves, uh, they tend to be really, really spiky, but the yes. tree somehow knows 
the higher up they they put out leaves, they don't bother so much with the spikes because they understand they're beyond the grazing kind of regime. Yes. So they just don't tend to put the energy into making spikes, I think. That's it. It's, it's rather like pollarding there. Uh, pollarding is up at a above grazing height, yeah. whereas coppicing is a down at grazing height yes. for a different style of woodland management, mm. isn't yeah. it? But we're also standing in between two sides of the valley that are covered in ancient woodland. How do you define ancient and how, is it continuous um, in some way? The definition of an ancient woodland is where a woodland has been in place for at least 400 years. It doesn't mean that every tree in that woodland is 400 years old, but mm -hmm. as an ecosystem, which includes the soil, mm -hmm. very importantly, yeah. as well as the trees, it's been there for probably several hundred years. As yeah. far as we're aware, the soil is the, is the most important aspect of that ecosystem. It's the fact that the all the, the memory and all the good organisms uh, are stored in the soil. Um, so you might be able to clear or coppice a woodland and almost clear fell it if you like. And of course that would have some sort of visual enactment on the, on the landscape, but the actual soil structure itself, if that maintains all that good stuff going on and on and on over the but centuries. The soil is not independent of the trees. Totally it's a not. very, very interlocked relationship between the roots of the trees, the falling leaves, the decomposition, all of the invertebrates that live with the trees and then the organisms in the soil and a very complex root system that involves fungi as well as trees and other plants. This is interesting because this is uh, emerging more in the public domain now. The fact that uh, the root system of a tree is... Uh, so wedded to a, a multitude of life forms and uh, uh, trees communicate with one another uh, and they use different fungi as part of that process so they actually defend one another as, by being in a community of trees rather than solo. You know, it should be a little surprise really, you know, that they, they're in a wood, you know, why wouldn't they sort of communicate through their underground, the microarousal root system, it's just and, an incredible And different network. types of trees as well working together, so mm -hmm. while this is predominantly oak, Yep. Um, a mixed woodland that has oak and birch and ash and holly and hawthorn, um, it has a resilience as well, so that mm. if one species doesn't do well for one reason on a particular year or because of an illness, there are other species that can step into the space. Well, I'm coming underneath Bull Crag. And ahead I can see Eagle Crag, very definite summit above Heron Crag. Uh, and there's a little dwelling here, which is on current ordnance survey maps, is called Allison Grass Hoggus, Hog House. What was a hog? A sheep? It's, it's a lamb and then it's a hog in its first year, with a double G. Yes. Right, and that's male or female or both? Both. 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 Yeah. Uh, and we're underneath uh, some bare uh, trees here. What are these trees, Rob? We've got a lot of sycamores around us. Uh, we've got a few ash dotted around in the field and there's a couple of oak I can see over there, but this tree right close to us in particular is really interesting. It's an elm. It's one of the survivors, of course, from Dutch elm disease, which ravaged the country back in the 70s and the 80s. And we've noticed this. We always stop by on the way up to the Langsworth Birch to say hello and just have a, have a look at this tree and, and marvel in its uniqueness, you know, because there's so few of them around the Lake District. It's the only one we know around here. We've had a little route around in the landscape nearby to see if there's any 
offspring or anything else coming through, but there's there's nothing. So it's, it's a lone elm on its, it's own. A, and, and most people walking past here would not spot it. No. And listeners, if you happen to be coming along this track, it is the last tree on the left before you get to the Hoggus or Tilly's camping barn. Yeah. But it's got a lot of burrs on it. Quite high up the tree, there's burrs. Woodworkers, I think, like it because yes. if you've got the wood and you've got that close grain and the patterning in the wood, a burr in a, in a piece of wood is, is a beautiful thing to, be, to behold. Yeah. Well, reflecting on that elm tree makes me ponder back onto your overall vision for the long view and the seven trees. How did it all come together? It took us about five years to find the list of seven, which might sound surprising, but it's quite hard to find a particular tree. Um, Rob wanted to find trees that stood out photographically, which is why they stand on their own. Um, but I had to agree that that tree had a particular appeal Pre- a and presence. a feeling and a presence and was very resilient and strong in its own place. Mm. And we wanted them to be different species Quite. and not in the same valley. So as we found them one by one, we knew we then had to look for a different tree in a different location. Yeah. The Langstrath birch that we're walking to today, um, we came to in 2013. Uh-huh. And we were actually just planning a long walk here. And we came to the tree and decided to have our lunch there. Two hours later, we were still there, sketching, writing, photographing. And we thought, that is a special tree. It had a personality that drew you to it. that was it. And then we knew, that's it. We are definitely on the road to finding our seven now. I'll talk you through the seven trees, if you like. Going from east, we call it as a constellation of trees. There's there's seven in the constellation. So going from east, there's a little Asby Hawthorn, which is on uh, Little Asby Common uh, near Mm -hmm. Orton on the... uh, right-hand side of the motorway going north or the uh, east side of the M6. Then we've got the Kentmere Rowan, which stands in a a beautiful rock in the the head of the Kentmere Valley. We've got an an alder, the Troutbeck Alder, which is right by Troutbeck Stream in Troutbeck Valley, which is one of Beatrix Potter's um, early farms, Mrs. Helis's early farms. So it stands there. Then we come up and over Threshwaite Mouth into Oldswater. We've got the Glencoyne Pine, which stands above Glencoyne Valley uh, on the elbow of Oldswater. Then we've got the Underhelm Sycamore, which is on the scree slope of Helm Crag in Grasmere. Fantastic location on this really steep, steep scree, scree which is. cars can see if they take notice during summer when it's in leaf. You can spot it against the scree slope. Mm. So in the winter, it's hard to spot. Yes. And then you come from the Sycamore over into this valley, mm-hmm. coming up Far Easdale to Langstrath, and this is the birch. And then yes. from here, up and over into Wasdale to the westernmost tree, which is the Wasdale Oak, and that's on the screes that run down into Wastwater, the deepest yeah. lake in England. Fabulous. Now, it's a journey you've created. Yes, we thought when we set the project up, we wanted to join those seven trees together. We wanted to feel the space between them. So we did something called the Light Walk in 2016, which over midsummer we set off for seven days mm-hmm. and we walked and camped at each of the seven trees over that period of time. It was a great experience, actually, and... Uh, you know, you set out and the first day's walk was really long from Little Asby Hawthorne to the Kentmere Rowan, 30, a, 32 kilometres. That is a mean day. Yeah. <laughs> and, and did Gilly do that walk? Yeah, he did. He was a bit bemused. I mean, we got this great picture of him below Harter Fell. We still have three hours of walking to do and he was like, he was just like lying down on the path, snoring and he couldn't believe we had another three hours walk to do. And I kept, couldn't believe it no, I couldn't go, no. So we got there at night. It was like a 13-hour walking day. It was a long day's walk. He, he felt thoroughly hounded. Yes, yeah. but I mean, each of the trees you can get to in mm-hmm. between 10 and 40 minutes if you just walk to them. crashing sound in the background of the beck that's Langstrath Beck 
Uh, this is above the confluence with Greenup Guild, where the two great valleys come together uh, below Eagle Crag. Now, this is a sort of an industrial scene. Can you tell me a yeah, little bit about um, it? Well, there's a little island in the middle where the two streams meet there, which is called Smithy Meyer Island. How fascinating. And um, it used to be where there was smelting going on. So the iron ore that was brought down from Bowfell all the way down Langstrath Valley. From all gap? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Would and be... Smithy is the blacksmithing of, yep. That's it. So it all took place on that island um, using fuel made from the trees around about here. It's curious they did it on an island setting. Right. I can't work out why they put it on an island. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I don't know. Well, we're <laughs> any... not the archaeologists, no, but somebody any, says. <laughs> any listener who knows, please let us know. I've seen early prints like the view from the Wattonleth Bridleway looking into Borrowdale, 1700s, early 1800s, and the smoke at various points on that. It was a big industrial era in the Lake yeah. District with mining and everything, so this yeah. place was not always clean and fresh. No, and of course they're bringing the ore down. Which route will they have come? The Stake Pass route? That's it, yes. I think they would have come down Stake Pass and probably using fell ponies. Yeah. And up there there's Angle Tarn. I gather that's to do with the miners stocking fish in the tarn to give them oh. some meat. Very that, that, sensible. Yeah, no, that, that would be the case, I think. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, we'll move on a bit further. Fabulous wall there, Harriet. This is a, a really old way, isn't it? Many people will have come up here over the years, up over into Langdale, uh, and up uh, onto the Skor Fells. Now, I seem to remember there's an interesting story about climbing mountains. Can you tell me a little bit about this, Harriet? Yeah, I can. Well, in about, I think it was 1822, um, William Wordsworth uh, published an account of going up Scarfell Pike. Mm -hmm. And... Um, actually turns out it wasn't him that did it. Oh, that so back in, <laughs> back in 1818, his sister Dorothy walked up there with her friend Mary Barker. And Mary was a very independent woman. She lived in Borrowdale. She mm -hmm. had what is now Scarfell Hotel built as her house. I went there on my honeymoon. There you go. Um, and I was really fortunate to take part in a walk um, with Alex Jacob Whitworth, uh, reimagining what it might have been like for those women. So Alex was Dorothy, uh -huh. I was Mary Barker, oh, we wore our long dresses and our bonnets. That was cumbersome. Uh, 200 years to the day, in fact to the minute, and we followed in their, their footsteps going up. We didn't make it to the top because it was horrendous weather. Um, but it was really interesting. We met a lot of people along the way and they said, well, what are you doing? And uh, they didn't realise that that written account that Dorothy wrote in her letters was the first ever written recording of the ascent of Scuffell Pike. Isn't that lovely? And it's that woman's voice that sometimes needs to be reclaimed, I think. Did they know what they were looking at? In the letters, mm -hmm. she was able to stand at Eskhors and, and at, the, the, at the summit and look out and name the mountains like Blackcomb and all of the Langdales and Skiddor. And I think that implies a very deep knowledge of, of the peaks and also having seen them from a height on a number of occasions. Yes, but the maps yes. from the time weren't very good at naming things. And uh, there's one from around that time for the whole Scafell Massif that just says 
desolate and mountainous. <laughs> Cumberland wastes. <laughs> yeah, and at the time, it would have been a really big thing to have gone up to that height. It was before people had started going abroad to mountains. Quite. Um, I, but fair play to the women. And, and they said they had a great day and they weren't even tired at the end of it which is quite an achievement. It shows that they had resilience and they were regularly outdoors. They walked an awful lot and Dorothy would walk for at least four hours a day while she was able to. It's fabulous. The valley's opened up now and there's no trees, well, almost no trees now. Uh, there's a wall beside me and a rough track running on ahead of me. And uh, I'm looking up Langstrath, which means the long marshy valley. And I'm looking right at the head of the valley and I can see Bowfell and the sun is lighting up onto Great Slab, the flat crags to the left of Cambridge Crag and Bowfell Buttress. And then you just see the summit of Bowfell. And in front of it all is Rosset Pike. And to the left of that, just around the corner, is Stake Pass, which is where this bridleway is heading. And above me, up to the left, I can see the upper reaches of Eagle Crag with Urn Crag or Heron Crag, the Sea Eagles Crag, immediately to my left. And ahead of me, half left, is Sergeant Crag with a great gully feature, which is quite a dominant element. And in the wall to my right, on the Rosthwaite Fell side, there's a huge erratic, which seems as if it's teetering on, on its edge, like a, a big coin. But you see the wall running up onto Rosthwaite Fell, steeply up there. It's a great open prospect. Well, it's interesting up here, Rob, uh, uh, Harriet, there's, uh, there's a fence up there. Uh, this is on the Rosswaite Fell side, on the west side of the valley. Uh, there's a bit of regrowth there. Uh, what is being done to sustain the natural tree growth, as it were? Well, you say sustain, it's sustaining itself. The fact that it's been fenced off is an active uh, measure to, uh, and it will involve the local farmers, of course, mm -hmm. uh, to actually preclude stock, uh, sheep, from, from gaining that side of the fence. And over a period of time, quite quickly actually, you'll see the vegetation growing back. Seeds from some of the trees we can see up there, some of the ash, some of the birch, there's some holly I saw further back, uh -huh. will set their own seeds, settle into the ground, and, and then they'll just get on. And if those seeds do well, they'll create a perfect next habitat. That regeneration in this landscape and a lot of other places in Cumbria is very important alongside active planting schemes. Yes. So further up this valley, there's, I don't know if it's about 100 trees planted individually in uh, fenced off tree no, cages. In, in sheaths, is this? Sheaths, yeah. So mm -hmm. it's, that's more like a woodland pasture mm -hmm. arrangement. So you can, then you have some succession for what are now very old trees in the landscape mm -hmm. and they need to have younger ones to come in in the future. See, so anybody coming here now still just sees a barren place in a sense. But if they came back here in 50 years time, the Wasdale Oak, for instance, which we first met in 2012, was very much on its own. Mm -hmm. And since then, there are a number of small oaks that are now about waist height or even higher, and it won't be long until there's a grove of oak trees there. there and that, that's just a difference in change of grazing patterns. But that's in large patterns. part due, as Harriet said, in, in terms of the grazing patterns, because the tenant farmer there 
would have gone into a scheme, uh, an environmental stewardship scheme, uh, to reduce the stock numbers on that fell side. Mm -hmm. And over a period of time, the, the little acorns, because they've not been planted there, have, have just gone woof, taken up through the brambles, which help enormously, right. through the bracken, which sort of protect it a bit, and then it sort of puts on beyond that. And before you know it, it's, it's wriggled away and it becomes a, a proper tree in its own right. Well, it's better than gilly, because gilly doesn't even woof at all. <laughs> <laughs> We're right by the beck here and, and by the tree, which is very much the focus of our walk today. It's not a big walk, but this is a big tree and, and it's emotionally and visually quite special. The lighting at the moment is remarkable. The crags are lit up, but it's not as if they're all lit up. They're just moments. Eagle Crags got it at the moment. A moment ago, Sergeant Crag had it. Now, what drew you to this spot, this amazing spot by Langstrath Beck? Well, I think you've just described one of the things that appeals to us about this spot, looking around and seeing how the light's touching different fell tops. It's catching the water here, which flows white over the rocks. And there, the birch tree is curving above the beck. It's got the valley all around it with the wide sky above, the clouds moving. It's absolutely beautifully framed. And there's something quite hypnotic as well about the water. And when we first came here, we walked down out of curiosity about the water to sit down, have a sandwich, have a cup of tea. And of course, your eye is drawn immediately to that tree, which is so solid and beautiful while everything else is moving around it. And it never fails to kind of render me speechless, actually, which is quite funny for a poet. But um, it is just exquisitely beautiful. The way the water runs down a series of rock slabs there, uh, in a very eloquent flow. It's not just one great fall, but it all draws your eyes back towards that one tree. It's like a dancer frozen mid-pose. It sweeps up um, over the water. Yeah. And there's the sun now. Look at that sun. because the tree hasn't got any leaves now, it's just a silhouette. Yeah, and there's the sun past. Wow. It's these moments, this stringing together of moments. What you do need, I think, is the willingness to spend a bit of time and just to be quiet and let this scene really wash through you. It's, it's something very, very special. I'm sorry I wasn't part of that conversation. Uh, I got drawn to go and photograph the tree. You know, that's what I'm here for. And I know we're here to do the podcast, but I couldn't help myself. The inner photographer says the light is astonishing. Go and capture it. So I was scurrying around and just sort of following the light around the tree and just capturing you guys sort of stood in the background. And uh, the light at this time of the year is, is truly wonderful. When you get that golden shafting of light that just comes out and just catches the tree, catches the beck, catches the surrounding hills and just plays on the fells, you can't avoid it, I'm afraid. You're instinctive about it. You wandered off and we wondered where you'd gone for a moment. Yeah. Different seasons of the year you come here. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the prime drivers of the whole project was not to do it just in one year. We, we decided to do it over a two-year period. So get in a, a whole the panoply of life in terms of the seasons that they were passing to sort of witness the tree with the leaves and without the leaves and the young uh, green shoots coming uh, and just feel like what the tree was feeling. I know you can't place human attributes, but just sense what the landscape was doing. As Harriet was saying earlier, we wanted to do it in a slow way, in a measured way. It's not a quick rush in, snap and go again. It's this continual journey into the trees to actually be here and just sit with it for, for long periods of time. I can remember coming here in January a few years ago when we first started 
visiting the trees and it was freezing. We actively sought out the weather. I saw in the weather forecast it was going to be like minus two snowing and blowing again. And I said, great, let's go to Langtrath for it. <laughs> and we were here for a couple of hours and Harriet said to me after about an hour, I can no longer write, I can no longer use my fingers. And I said, great, because that's what it's like to get the sense of being in a landscape at that time of the year. And it became the iconic view in some sense of the whole project. Her stood with the, with the Langstrath birch, was the front cover of the book, because I just liked the way that she was stood there in this really cold landscape with this bare tree. And it was almost like this conversation was going on. It just became very symbolic of the whole project. It sort of welds you two together. It's very rare for somebody to observe two people who are on the same page as you two are with your emotional connection with particular places. And I think if you can connect anybody emotionally with a place, with an idea that you're trying to get across, then that's going to embed much deeper, root much stronger, and uh, give a greater sense of wanting to care for a place, to protect it. If you understand it more through an emotional connection, then, then brilliant, job done. Absolutely. Langstrath goes on from here, but we'll turn back in a moment. We can't go back without at least going to touch the trunk of the tree. Ah. Okay, well, we'll do that now. Come and meet the tree, Mark. Oh, Harriet, you are so generous. <laughs> uh, has the tree got a name? It's the Langstrath birch. There you are. Right, well, I'll touch it first. Uh, how about yourself and Rob? Oh, we'll all hold it together. We've got, Rob and I have got the same limb. You've got another one. So sturdy, isn't it? Oh. And the, the river underneath. Look at that. It's as solid as the rock below. And there's a wonderful fall just there. And I can look above me towards uh, Sergeant Crag. The birch is so delicate. So we're now looking at the fells through these, this lattice of, of tiny twiggy branches. Just beautiful. Are you going to do a line drawing from this perspective? Oh, well, that's an idea. I'll take a photograph because I work from photographs. Okay. But we'll see. I, I, I should do. Windy, it? I should do. We'll get the photograph on the website, but we'll have a drawing on there as well. It's lovely to see you here and, and getting such pleasure from it. There's a tremendously gusty a moment ago, wasn't it, Harriet? We found a little bit of a glaciated rock to hide behind. Now, you've been writing a bit of poetry about this. What have you got to offer us? Um, I'm going to read uh, two poems. Mm -hmm. um, one about the birch that was inspired by its bark, but I'm going to start with a poem that I think reflects um, the slow nature of our walking. It takes a while to walk in to walk into a valley, to walk into the feeling of being at ease with yourself, with the land. And while walking in, there is a walking out, out of concerns and out of body strain, a loosening of spine, legs, shoulders, head, a slow unravelling into openness that brings with time the sense of walking in, walking into place. Magical. This is a couple of walkers just going behind, waving to us. You got that sense Hello. that they're just walking in. Yeah, they've got that um, that way about them. I think they've come down the path, so they'll have been walking for a good few hours. They're yeah. all relaxed. They're all relaxed. Now yeah. that said it very well in that poem. So um, because we're at the birch, it seems appropriate to read um, something that was inspired by being with the birch. Um, and I... One of the things I like about silver birch is what happens to their bark and the texture and the colours and 
I, I can spend hours just looking at the bark of that tree. And I think perhaps it's enhanced because it's got the moving water underneath it or something. Uh, so here's, here's a poem. Paper bark. If I were to sit with this birch and weather the years above the white rage of water, my back would form a knot from leaning into rock and I would write my place, myself a page of high sky white, my skin in flakes and curls. I'd scribe lines of boulder grey, etched with mud and wet stone blue, write with lichen bronze and midnight dark, weave in some ashen herdwick hue, ask a peregrine for sheen, a wheat ear for its beige, then burnish the text with the drama of sun and wash with rain and wind. As it is with trees, I could write nothing but the truth. I'd tell it just as it is, barked body as a book, all struggles set as scars. Gillies come to a halt by Tilly's Balm, which I think is very appropriate. We've been talking off the mic about continuity of the landscape and, and the challenges of rewilding and bringing back the trees and all that. There's a certain tension there, but how do you feel we can continue to resolve that one, Harriet? I think the problem is polarisation, if you say trees or sheep or rewilding or grazing and I think that the Lake District is a very complex landscape and it has been for many years it's not a new thing mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of new things now with climate change and recognized decline in biodiversity and such like but every single valley here is very unique mm -hmm. and very different very and some habitats are very rich some need improving um, and within that complexity there's I believe and I think Rob agrees with me that there is there's a middle way, and it's not about sitting on the fence, it's about standing up for the middle way, mm -hmm. which is that there is room for uh, grazing and management of the land through traditional farming practices, which, mm -hmm. which can adapt as well. Um, conversations beginning from that shared agreement that everybody loves this place and values it. Mm. Um, and there are a number of different ways to achieve ends that are very good for the landscape um, and continue the ability for people to live here and earn a living being mm -hmm. here. Hill farming isn't profitable as a business. Hill farming doesn't make money. Nope. If you look at the statistics, I think it's like up to 17% of a farm income is actually comes from the livestock. Farmers readily admit that a lot of money comes through taxpayers, if you like, through stewardship schemes, which they sign up to. And part of that stewardship scheme could be to reduce stocking rates on mm -hmm. both on the land they've got, but also the fells, the commons up above the walls. And they're, they're happy to go in that if they're part of the conversation rather than being told what to do. I think Quite. possibly historically uh, the case is being that things have been put down onto them or told to them to do without involving them in the proper conversation. Mm. And, and also I think um, looking at the benefit of uh, farmers in the way that they understand and manage the landscape and not just measuring a farm's value by the money that is paid for livestock. No. There's a lot more value there. Farmers the intelligence. Uh, help with planting of trees, with whatever you want to call it, carbon capture. There's, it's a very complex landscape and there are a lot of different things that farming is beneficial for. I, I think it would be wrong at so many different levels if the farmers were forced off the landscape. You know, I think 
historically, this has always been a work landscape. It's always been a managed landscape through thousands of years. And I think if people were just to encourage farmers or coerce farmers in whatever way to leave, then I think that would be a crying shame. We're moving towards the end of the day. At this time of year, towards the middle to the end of November, days are very short and you, you, you can't believe it. It's dusk in the air. It's a beautiful feel to it. It's, it's a lovely... Been, you can't complain about the weather, can you? Yeah, yeah. soft we had, golden light. Yeah, we had that breeze when we got to your famous tree. It was <laughs> blowing like a hoolie, but it's gone now and it's lovely and calm. It draws me to think as sort of like a final thought. Have you, Harriet, got one of your seven that stands out and is sort of extra special? It's actually this tree that I took you to. It, I wonder about that. <laughs> it's hard to have a favourite, um, but, yeah, if I had to choose one, it would be the Langstrath birch. So I'll give you a chainsaw for the others. <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't. How about you, Rob? Um, mine has to be the Little Asby Hawthorn. Uh, mm. The outlier, the one furthest to the east. Right. Just because of the position it holds. And, Is it uh, on limestone? It's on limestone. It's on the limestone pavement. Uh, it's the only proper tree for quite a long distance. And quite what I like about it, it's got its own symbol on the OS map. There's an, on the OS map, there's this <sighs> deciduous tree symbol, and it's the little Asby hawthorn. Now, that is pretty rare. If you ever go there and you see the landscape that it inhabits and the, the prospect it's got, it's uh, a few hundred metres up. You can see for miles the northern Howgills, the eastern Lake District, the Pennines, and there's nothing between it and the weather. It just comes in and it just takes, takes it on the chin. I look forward to going to your tree. Yeah, Journey's End Mark and we are here just south of Keswick uh, after our walk with Rob and Harriet and it was a, a wonderful potpourri of varied walking and interest. One of the things that struck me and that came up in conversation towards the end was their awareness of the delicate balance between the rewilding argument and trees in the landscape there and particularly encouraging new woodland throughout the county and the viewpoints and interests of the farming community as well who are often demonised. Harriet in particular was saying in strong terms, look, we need to get off the fence, as she said, and, and make a stand for a, a common ground where we can talk together. Yeah, it's so all it's about balance, isn't it? Well, this is it, yeah. And they've nearly got the right balance now. It just needs a little bit of tweaking and respecting people. And that was Rob's point, I think. We are very close to having that balance, but we just need to edge it a little bit, taking people with us as we, as we move into the future. Mm -hmm. Now, what are we doing next, Mark? Do we know yet? Well, of course, it's December. Mm, uh, which, which will mean recording will be difficult, right? challenging. Yes, I'll get colder hands, I yeah, think, is what, is what we really Warm mitts will be needed. Right. Uh, we have one or two ideas, Ooh, uh, but okay. in a sort of a way, I'm holding fire until I know what exactly the weather is, and I want to talk to one or two people, because it would be lovely to have a Christmas version, wouldn't it? It would. We can have a small Christmas party, just me and you, and perhaps uh, a small stocking for me. <laughs> For all my hard work um, 
uh, editing your puns out of the podcast. Uh, you deserve a medal and for that. <laughs> <laughs> a medal. Okay, well, Mark, look, until next time, what, what a lovely walk, and uh, until then. Okay, Dave, we'll look forward to it. <laughs>